Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Corner Table Talk. Today, I am so honored and excited and really looking forward to the conversation with Chef Mishama Bailey and Jono Morisano, the co-owners of The Gray in Savannah and The Gray Market, and the soon-to-come Gray Diner Bar and The Gray Market at the Thompson Hotel in Austin. They are also the co-authors of Black, White, and The Gray, the story of an unexpected friendship and a beloved restaurant. Uh, the Gray was opened in a former Greyhound bus terminal, and the accolades have just been pouring in ever since. It's a phenomenal space. I visited there last summer with my wife, and uh, the space is so cool. The room is packed. The vibe, the energy is just tremendous. The accolades, as I said, uh, semifinalists for the James Beard Award in 2015, Eater, Best Restaurant of the Year 2017, Food and Wine, Restaurant of the Year, and a new one on me, I didn't even know this existed, but Time Magazine's One of the World's Greatest Places. Mashama, Jono, welcome. I'm so happy to have you both. Thanks, Brad. Happy to be here. So happy to be here, Brad, and nice to see you again. Thank you. Great seeing you. <laughs> so I'll kick things off with what I call our short order questions, just to get your quick response. So we'll kind of follow maybe the order of the book. Since, Jono, you went first, I'll toss it to you. And then, Mashama, you can weigh in with your answer after Jono's. So, Jono, favorite family dish growing up? Oh, Sunday gravy. My grandmother's Sunday gravy, the Italian kind, um, which is uh, somehow made it into the book as a recipe. But if I could go back in time, that would be the first thing that I would eat. Love it. Mishama? Uh, seafood salad. My grandmother used to make this uh, seafood salad um, in the summertime. It was sort of her summer dish. And, you know, I'm in Savannah, so I can't say this too loud, but she would use, you know, imitation crab meat and shrimp and cucumbers and pasta. And it was just one of those things that we've all tried to make, but none of us can make it as good as she did. So it's it reminds me of summer and family barbecues. I love that. Uh, as native New Yorkers, Nets or Knicks, Jono? Uh, that's a hard one because I grew up a Nick fan. Um, so the Nets weren't even on my radar screen, but when they drafted Patrick Ewing, um, I had to get off the Nick bandwagon because I was a St. John's fan and the Georgetown St. John's rivalry was so strong back then that I just couldn't get with them after they got Patrick Ewing. So I'm sort wow. of. Yeah, I know. I mean, St. John's, though, I, that's, you know, St. John's, it was like the only time in their history they were good, you know, and Georgetown and St. John's were the biggest rivals in the country at that point. So so now I'm kind of I'm NBA neutral at this point. So NBA neutral. That's yeah. an interesting term, but I, I get it. But I, I'm still down with the Knicks. Mashama? Down with the Knicks. <laughs> I like an underdog. <laughs> <laughs> They well, have you've been rooting way. for the Knicks for a long time because that's been their status for, for quite a while. I will tell you, Brad, my, the first basketball game I ever went to was Dave DeBusher night at the Garden in, I think, like 74 when he was retiring. So long time Knicks fan. Yeah, man, those teams, the Bradley, DeBusher, Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, Earl Monroe, Dick Barnett. I mean, that, that was basketball. Yeah, back they, then. that was basketball back then. Yep. All right. 
Beverage of choice after a tough service night at the Gray. Jono, what you drinking? Mm. If it was a really tough night, um, a Manhattan. If it was a medium tough night, just a glass of wine. But if I'm going cocktail, I'm either going Manhattan or Negroni. And the tougher it was, the stronger the drink. So Manhattan. <laughs> With Shama? Um, for me, it depends. If I'm cooking on the line and it was a tough night, I'm going to have a beer. And if I am sort of expoing and sort of stress, like a personnel kind of stress tonight where, you know, everything is kind of going wrong, I'm going to have a Negroni. I love that. The beer because you're sweating on the line, right? Yeah, the beer <laughs> yeah. because I need to rehydrate, but I want a buzz <laughs> to wash away, you I know, get it. those to wash away the night. I get it. How about, Jono, how about your celebratory cocktail? It's an interesting question. You know, I think like, you know, my favorite kind of fancy cocktail is, is um, a French 75 made with cognac. You know, it looks pretty. It's in a flute. You know, you're kind of like, you know, you've got that champagne feel to it, but it's still got a little bit of a kick to it. I can see that. I can yeah. see that. Mishama? Totally stole my drink. Um, <laughs> I was going to say French 75, but if I really want to get fancy, it's probably going to be a gin martini with um, an olive. Okay. Well, Snoop's coming out with his gin and juice, so you might have to switch up at some point and, and try that. But <laughs> I like your choice. I haven't had, haven't had gin and juice in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one. And this, this one is kind of a, a leading into the next uh, as we get a little more serious. But just uh, your, your short answer, because we will revisit this. Removing the colored waiting room sign in hindsight, was that the right decision, Jono? Absolutely, 100%. Or altering it. I mean, we didn't remove it fully. We just altered it. But yes, it, right. was, the, it was the right decision. You changed it to waiting room. In exactly. Color. Yeah. Chef? Totally agree. I think it was the right choice. I was visiting Savannah in 2019 with my wife. We stopped by. We actually were visiting Chef Joe Randall, who, Chef, I know that, that you know and dear friend of, of everyone in the industry, been around yep. for so long, great guy. But with this past year, the pandemic, racial protests, all the stuff that's going on, I know you all are also opening. You're in the process of, of trying to get open in Austin, and Austin just got hit. Texas just got hit with some pretty tough weather conditions. I just wanted to check in on you, and, and I'll, I'll put the first question to you, Jono, and I want to check on your businesses and your staff. But, Jono, first, how, how, how are you handling this from, from a business side? I know that uh, with revenue basically grinding to a halt at some point, maybe starting to slowly come back, that's a, that's a challenge for operators. So how's that been for you? 2020 is, you know, is surreal. Like the whole thing was surreal, like going from having, you know, two thriving restaurants to, as you said, restaurant, not grinding to a halt, just halting, you know, like one day you were open and the next day you were closed. And so initially that was, it was hard just to wrap your head around and wrap your emotions around. And like within five or six weeks, you know, we started to think, okay, you know, what are we going to do here? And we mobilized, right? And, and I think that's how I approach things in general. And Misham and I sort of reconnected after, after like both of us heading to our corners because we didn't know how to handle the pandemic. And so we both kind of went to our respective corners for a few weeks and then 
was like, hey, businesses to run and a lot of people who depend on us and and on whom we depend. And so we just we got back to work in a way and we and we we got creative and we we got, you know, George is much more free and easy about opening than, you know, other states, New York and California. And so we had to, we had to open. I mean, we, we reopened the gray market in like June of last year. And then it was just figuring out how to navigate the pandemic and do it safely. And I mean, I feel, I feel like we did a pretty good job given all of the circumstances and, you know, and it was Dealing with the team was hard though, right? Because everybody was so emotional and trying and nobody really understands the financial stresses that you're under when you go from, you know, again, being thriving to zero, you know, and it, yeah, I feel hopeful though. <laughs> I don't know. That's a, it's a hard question, Brad. It's a hard question. That, that, that's, I'm glad that you ended though on an optimistic note. And as operator, you know, I'm a fellow operator as well. And, yep. you know, we wear many different hats, John, you know, from coming up with the money to negotiating leases and doing things that maybe aren't necessarily, you know, the things that are most natural for us, but we have to do all those things. Chef, I'm curious with the staff and the morale and folks needing extra attention. We all need it. I'm sure you needed it. How did how did you handle that in, in speaking and keeping your staff kind of of one mind and picking folks up and motivating people and or getting out of bed? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I do think that the staff was a lot of the reason why I got out of out of bed. And I think, you know, with the business grinding to a halt and or you know, stopping, you know, money is dried up and that's probably happened even faster for our employees. I know it for, you know, there's situations where it's like you are dependent on unemployment and you're not sure if you're going to make the rent. And so that part was really real because those concerns for our staff were communicated to us. And one of the things that we did um, in the beginning of the pandemic is we started having these weekly staff Zoom calls to take the temperature of the staff, you know, see how people were feeling, to talk to them about the decisions that we had to make. It was full, it was full transparency with the staff and just educating them on what the state is saying about the virus, what's the country saying about reopening and also, you know, communicating unemployment and um, figuring out how to continue to support each other emotionally and, and kind of helping them secure their financial support during this time. So it was a lot of talking. It was a lot of face-to-face, as face-to-face as we could be. You know, one of the things we did when we decided the management team met and we decided to close the restaurant. And instead of kind of sending out a mass email, we have this big yard at the gray and it was in March. So it was warm enough for us to meet outside, but we took each sort of group, right? So the servers met the back servers, the dishwashers, the cooks, and we kind of kept them in, you know, groups of 10 and smaller. And we just kind of went through, you know, what the plan was, what we knew and what we were doing that day and what we were planning to do in the next week or two. Because in March, we thought we were going to be closed for two weeks. We weren't sure. And I think that went a long way with people because, you know, they were seen and um, they felt supported. And I think that was one of the things that um, they really kind of... um 
they they really liked about us. And Jono was tasked with the <laughs> was given the task to talk to all the staff members. And at the end of the day, he was just like, ugh, you know, yeah, because it's such sure. a hard message to deliver to people that you don't know. Really, the big the big delivery was we don't know what's going to happen. At that point, they thought, you know, by closing the restaurant, we were and, and by, you know, it, it was so uncertain what unemployment like nobody knew what was going on. Right. We didn't know that there was going to be, you know, additional unemployment. You know, we didn't know anything at that point. All we knew is we were allowed to meet with 10 or less people. And so we did like eight meetings that day with all of our team from both restaurants. And, you know, you you I felt like I'm sure Mishama felt like and the team felt like so we were doing something to them, you know, rather than we were, you know, no one realized at that point what we were actually in the midst of or in the early stages of. You know, I I want to refer back to the book Black, White and the Gray, because so much of your approach to service and management, I mean, both of you are first time restaurant owners. And, and John, although I, I have to offer a little something here because you're in the park, we would call you a ringer. The guy who wears the bad sneakers, wears the shorts that everybody says, oh, he can't ball. But, you know, more about food and more about wine than some beverage directors that I know. So while you have never owned and operated a restaurant prior to the gray, you were no slouch coming into this. So but I, I do think that your the, the story as it unfolded with the gray to me just felt destined. You know, you, you go on this drive with your wife. You're kind of at a place where you're not sure what you want to do with your life. You've had, you know, really good success in, in multiple things that you've done in your life, but you, you hit a, you hit a dry patch. And I, I see it kind of analogous to what a lot of folks are feeling right now, but you decided to, to take a drive and just kind of expand your, your view, both physically, mentally, and, and what you're seeing out your window. And you end up in the South, you end up in Savannah and you walk into this, you see this bus station, you walk and, and ultimately you walk inside and it just hits you. Tell, tell me a little bit about that initial experience going down South and visiting Savannah with your wife, the headspace you were in. Just kind of expand on that a little bit, if you would. Yeah. Well, I just want to address the fact that I've never walked into the schoolyard and been considered a ringer or pulled it off. So um, I usually ended up getting beat up pretty well. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I also like in my career, what I did, you know, we were just people I worked with. We were just very entrepreneurial. So we actually had far more failure than we had success in, you know, just over the course of a career. And that's what happens when you're sort of entrepreneurial. So, you know, going down to Savannah was, you know, at this point in my life where I kind of knew my career as I knew it was that chapter was over and not like, you know, in a way where it was like, wow, that chapter was over. What a great run. It was sort of more like I felt really dejected and, and like, like not, not a failure, but I definitely felt at this, as you put it, crossroads, I think you said. And so we had had this house in Savannah. I was trying to figure out what to do with, you know, my life. We picked Savannah as a place maybe for like our retirement because it was warm and it was beautiful and it's charming and we didn't know anything about it. And when I was thinking about, you know, what's next, um, you know, I, I couldn't, retire, right? I was 45 years old or so, or 44, I think, when we bought the bus terminal. 
And so I decided, you know, real estate in this town that I didn't know anything about would be a good idea, which in retrospect just seems foolish in, in a way. And I started to look at real estate and that's when um, I stumbled across the bus terminal, which was totally, it was boarded up in a way on the street side that I had no idea what was behind it until I went in the building. And it took a while to even figure out that it was a bus terminal. And, but as soon as I went in and sort of spent five minutes in there, you could see that this building, because it was built in 38 in the midst of like sort of America's art deco period, um, that there was something unique about it from everything else I had seen in the South, which, you know, most or in Savannah, most of Savannah was reconstructed in the 1860s and 70s. And um, and I just was attracted to the building. And then I learned, you know, the person I was with, the real estate agent, who's a good friend of both mine and the Shamas at this point, Jackie was saying like, oh, yeah, you know, this is a bus terminal. And that's where she pointed out sort of the history of segregation there. And then my wheel started to turn about buses and then their relationship to the South from a segregation point of view, from a desegregation point of view. And this building was decrepit and it was, you know, in one spot falling down. And, and I'm saying this out loud. I think maybe that's when I decided that this building was going to become my mission, um, in a way to save myself. And I don't mean to sound dramatic because I didn't need to be saved, but I did need to be reinvigorated. And maybe that building before I even knew it, because that was a year before we um, were able to purchase it because the guy didn't want to sell it initially. Um, I think I, that, that building became a metaphor for my own reinvention at that, maybe right then and there, it could have been. I have to think about that more. Um, yeah. yeah, and it just hit me. Part of that story just makes the book so compelling, especially now when folks are just looking for what to do. Our lives have been, you know, completely upended. And, and I just really enjoyed your, your process of discovery there. Uh, Chef, you had you had a bit of a different experience. I won't say different in that Jono wasn't aware of the racial connotations behind the bus stop and bus station and, and when it was built. But, Chef, you walked in there and I want to quote um, what you say in the book. You said traveling the south at that time was very dangerous, more dangerous than any of us could have imagined, that being the 1930s. Uh, and that you would have probably felt you personally would have probably felt nervous and afraid because of all of the harm and danger you would have ex been exposed to that would have been out of your control. That's mm -hmm. that's pretty powerful, visceral reaction to walking in a building and thinking of those images, thinking of what travel was actually like for black folks in the 30s and the 40s throughout the South. Can you expand on on that those emotions that overtook you when you walked in there? Yeah, I just want to back up just for a second. When Jono and I met in New York City before I went down to Savannah, he showed me the blueprints and the building was still in its original layout. It still had its original layout. And he point when he pointed out that there was a colored waiting room in this bus station designated for colored people, for black folks, I wanted that that was the that was the draw for me. That was the part that kind of got me on the plane and got me down to see the building. 
thing because I had never heard of anyone or anyone sort of preserving this area or these sort of areas of Jim Crow, um, whether they were doing it on purpose or, or not, and also being able to utilize that space to bring a conversation about the history of the South and Black folks and travel in the South and within any any restaurant, right? So I thought that that part was super compelling to me and I wanted to see the space. And when I walked into the building, I was anxious. I just wanted to see what it was like and see if I felt anything. And to my surprise, I felt warmth in that space. And the warmth came from the fact that there was nervousness and, and fear, but there was also a lot of happy happiness. People going on trips to see their family. There's probably a fear of people going to war. People, you know, there was a lot of tears of joy in that space that really kind of over overcame those feelings of segregation and aggression that I originally thought that I was going to feel when I walked in. I originally thought I was going to have these sort of this emotional reaction that was going to be negative and about, you know, really our history in this country and in the South. But it wasn't. It was about the joy that, that we also experience in this country. And those joys, I thought, was really the compelling part to kind of make me feel that I could do it, be a part of of this journey with him. But if I'm telling you, I mean, you know, I am, I was born in 1974. So that sort of like servitude, that understanding those rules of engagement that black people had to understand in order to travel outside of their communities, that was, uh, that was daily conversation, right? Like if you're gonna, if you gotta go to the other side of town, you don't, you don't look anybody in the eye. You don't, you know, you cross the street when a white person is coming down on the same side of the street as you. Like these are conversations that black mothers were having with their children on a daily basis. So when you have to go and travel, you don't know what could be a trigger for something, a trigger for violence or aggression towards you just because you're black. And 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 that's a very dangerous place to be on the coast of Georgia in the middle of the South. That's a very sort of um, vulnerable place to be put in. So you always had to be paying attention and, and have your guard up. And that just seems so horrible. Yeah. And, and I know that you had some pretty extreme, at least one very extreme episode in your family that I, I want to I'll allude to in a few minutes. And, and, you know, as someone who has rehab buildings and, and enjoys that process, I can't imagine the thrill of walking into a building like that with the bones that that place had and the stories that were in those walls and, and in the, and just how, how exhilarating. Jono, you and Chef together are like medicinal for this country right now. Um, I feel like we all need a dose of what you all are serving metaphorically and literally <laughs> at your restaurants, along with maybe a COVID vaccine. As you, as you look back, uh, given the issues around racial justice that we've all kind of seen, you know, reborn again this year with George Floyd and all of the drama of, of 2020 and knowing the pivotal role that your restaurant has played and now becoming even more a part of the national conversation. Do you have a crystal ball somewhere? No, I don't. 
Listening to Mishama talk about her visceral response to the building and and even the way she writes about it. And my my exploration, you know, it was of that building was almost like an academic one. Right. I started to read about race um, in my 30s and race in America and race or not even racism in America. I started to read about race in America in my 30s. And I had an academic fascination with it or, or an intellectual one and trying to understand it and trying to understand my place in relation to it. And even though, you know, and so it was books because I didn't have people of color as friends or in my life. Right. So until that probably was part of what drew me to the South in retrospect, I know it was at that point in time, I didn't know. And the purchase of the building, same thing. And it didn't come to life in any any more than two dimensional way until Mishama came, walked into the building too. And then we were in it together. And now all of a sudden there really was three dimensions to it. You know, me, her and the building, you know, add up to three, but also the viewpoints. Um, so I guess I was aware enough to know that me and the building were just me in a building. That's it. You know, and all of my, you know, angst as a white guy and my relation to race were just, you know, abstract. Um, and so it wasn't a crystal ball as much as it was sort of a self-serving desire to keep digging. And again, and, and, you know, I was looking for redemption, frankly, you know, in my own life. Um, and not redemption, you know, white tears redemption relative to, you know, people of color, but just personal redemption, you know? And so, yeah, you know, it was really, it was really a survival instinct, I think. But, you know, that John Owen and Jeff, it's what strikes me, you know, is, is just destiny. I mean, even the title of the book, Black, White and the Gray. You know, the gray is all the stuff in between, right? It's it's all the stuff that we're talking about that we're trying to muscle through and think our way through and find a way to talk about it. And I so admire, you know, it's one thing to be honest with your thoughts and your feelings, but it's another way to say them in a way that conveys the message that you're trying to convey to the listener. And in your book, you both are so articulate around very delicate subjects and very honest but the, the, the way that you articulate your points of view, it just, it, it just drew me in. Chef, I'm curious, you know, turn, let's turn a little bit to the food here. Um, I know John O, Italian. My mom was Italian. My dad was black. I love Italian food. I also love Ooh, Southern food in, in all its forms. I know that there was some back and forth initially about what the gray should serve. And Mashama, you said something very interesting that I've actually written about when it comes to African-American chefs and what the expectation is of what they should cook. You said, why does a black woman have to be able to cook Italian when an Italian woman isn't expected to cook anything else? And then you went on further to say, I can tell you that I didn't value my own cultural contributions to American cuisine until I began to learn and cook the foods of other countries. I can also tell you that I needed to work and train myself in other cuisines before I began to value my own. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I'm like, I just got like a little emotional just listening to you read that because I think that it goes to, um, it goes to how a lot of us 
feel or, uh, you know, I was going to say it goes to how, our, what our place is in America. You know, it goes to um, what the value that's placed on us in this country that we've been, you know, brought to and reared in and been here for the past, you know, 400 years. So it kind of goes to like that value goes to our history and not knowing our history and not really embracing it in a way that will be supported. You know, there, there are a lot of examples of those Black kitchens, those Black chefs, and those Black dishes that are being revered across the world. And so I think like that was like the basis of it. And what I found on my journey as I was, as I was um, cooking, learn how to cook, cook French food and learn how to cook Italian food, I was starting to learn that there are very, there are dishes and techniques. And I, you know, I often compare it to French cooking or French techniques, but it wasn't really until I was, I was in France and of all places. And, um, I ended up going to South Africa for a little bit. And then I ended up coming back to France. And that's when I kind of made that connection of African, American, Southern, and what those things mean and how to explore those things. Because I think that there's still a lot that we don't know about African cooking. And so I just knew that I needed to come from a place of honesty and a place of uh, vulnerability in order for me to create further. But I, I knew in order to keep me creative, I needed to always kind of have a home base. And that home base, I decided to make it of, about me. I decided to make it about my family and, um, and my, um, my, my history and try to tell that through food. So it's about like how I valued myself and how I valued food. And it took me a long time to understand that, um, that, you know, I bring something to the conversation. We all as black folks bring a lot to the conversation when it comes to food and, and about, and also about it being progressive and not about it kind of being in this stereotypical box of what's expected of us and labeled as soul food or labeled as, you know, there is no label for it. You know, we're just, you know, black Americans cooking food and we're cooking things that resonate with us. Wow. You articulate that so well. I'm, I'm so glad to know that you're out there and, and the person that will be continuing to, to have voice in, in that conversation, because I think it's a, it's just a really important one as we come to understand more of the, the African-American contribution to American food and our own understanding of that. Um, Jono, you very early on decided that you wanted someone very different than yourself as a, as a business partner. And again, as an operator, when you speak about business partner, that's a marriage. <laughs> that's not just hiring somebody who's going to work with you. That's a serious commitment. Um, but you said something really interesting that you would be perceived as just another carpetbagger from New York City. Um, if you didn't do something a little bit different, but at the same time you had to, and, and so you said out loud in front of the designers that you really felt that the, that the space was calling for an African American woman as your partner. I can, I get that. And you have a marketing background and you're sharp New York cat. And I understand how that could be appealing in terms of creating a story, but you also had to think about Man, what if the, the perception that we're, we're talking about the South here? What if that doesn't play well? Did any of those thoughts, did you have any of those conflicting thoughts in your mind? 
I just want to say that, you know, the way Mashama articulated that about food, just think about how annoying it was writing a book with her when you're a marginal writer and you're rewriting paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. And then she just says something like that. You just want to, like, throw your computer out the window. I just want to make that observation. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I thought about all those things. I, you know, I, I saw my mom this weekend and she brought up that scene in the book and the book is written like a lot of set pieces because the building is such a character in the book and food and dinners are such a character in the book. And my mom was really taken with that scene where, you know, I call up the guys from parts and labor who designed the space, Jeremy and Andrew. And I was like, I figured it out. I was walking around the space and I'm like, they, they're like, you figured out what? And I said, I figured out who my business partner needs to be, or I don't know who she is, but I know what she is and, and what that person is, is somebody the exact opposite of me. And to me, the exact opposite was um, a woman and you know, being a white guy, a black woman is about as opposite as opposite as it can get. And, you know, there's a literal literary license taken in that part of the book, just in the conversation that happened between me and Jeremy and Andrew, because, you know, it, as you said earlier, like it's sensitive subject matter and you don't want to. I didn't I wasn't trying to be exploitative but I was worried about seeming exploitative, right? I did want a successful business, right? And I did want to reach the broadest part of the community around us, our region, as we could. But, that, you know, this is a complete minefield, right? And it's a minefield because, you know, there's so much of the media and influencers now who can't wait to pounce on everything that you do. Um, and yeah, I mean, I kind of wake up still nervous every day, right? That somebody's going to call us out for something we did or didn't do. Um, and, you know, you try not to, well, you don't live in fear of that, but it's really, there's so much danger out there right now around these sensitive subjects. And, and rightfully so. I mean, there's a long history of it not, you know, of a lot of heartache and tragedy and nefarious intentions and, and nefarious actions. And, and so, yeah, the whole thing is, was nerve wracking at the time, you know? And, you know, I think that at this stage, I think that Mishama, I'll speak for me, you know, I trust my relationship with Mishama and with the gray, you know, that I feel like, you know, we're, where we've overcome some of those fears and the carpetbagger. And, you know, I think our relationship with Savannah, while it is always going to be complicated, I think that the, the city and the community trusts our intentions to make the city and the community a stronger, more cohesive community. But yeah, it's nerve wracking. What did your mother have to say about that part? It was her favorite part because, you know, no, it was her favorite part because it led to Mishama and Mishama is like her favorite person. You know, it's like she loves. So, me. oh, she loves you so much. It's like I thought, oh, did you like my writing? She's like, no, but that's where that's where Mishama came from was when you were walking around and you had that idea. And now Mishama's in our lives. I'm like, great. well, Mishama, you're, you're pretty easy to love. So um, I, I get it. I wanted to, Chef, if you don't mind, I wanted to touch on a, a subject that was also um, something that struck me in the book because I've experienced it as well with our last restaurant, Post and Beam in particular. It struck me because of the neighborhood that we were in. We opened a place in South Los Angeles in a predominantly African-American community. And of the 
50 or 60 initial people that showed up for jobs, only three were African-American. And it took me a while and to get my staff balanced in the way that I did. And John, to your point, of course, you know, I got criticized and why aren't there more black people working here? And mm-hmm. having to try to explain those conversations mid-service was not something that I really looked forward to. Um, but Mashami, you talk about the stigma around service for, for black folks. And you say even your dad um, still struggles with these ideas and the history behind your chosen career. Can you can you shed a little light on that? Yes. Um, yeah, my dad, you know, his grandmother was a housekeeper and his mother was an LPN. She was a live-in sort of nurse. And both of them worked in, um, you know, in Manhattan for rich families. And so he was on the receiving end from from a child's point of view, you know, looking at all the time that they were away. And I think he just felt that um, he felt neglected and he felt like they chose, you know, this sort of family over him, I think. So I think that that's his his thing and his his struggle. But he definitely related it to me when I talked about working um, in this woman's home as a personal chef. And I'm trying to convince him that, no, being a personal chef is hip now and it pays really well. And, you know, and he was not really trying to hear that. And so coming to Savannah and trying to build a team, you know, everyone, there were a lot of there were there were no black people that showed up. There were maybe a handful of black folks that showed up. And there were no managers and there were no there were no um, there were a few all the black people were sort of in a dishwashing position. They were sort of low on the totem pole or lower on the totem pole. And that was confusing to me. And um, and it was one of those things that led to be a real distraction on how we were going to motivate people and get people into the space to work with us. So we still struggle with that, quite honestly. We still struggle with getting, um, you know, some black people on the floor. I don't think we've ever had a, a black person in a position of management. And I don't think it's a lack of trying. I just don't understand what it is about us that is not motivate, that isn't motivating people to come and want to work with us because we're trying, you know. Jono? Yeah, I don't I, I don't know. I mean, before, you know, I got the question the other day. I forget who I was talking to, but, um, you know, Mishama did an episode of Chef's Table for um, Netflix. Right. And somebody asked me the other day, like, did that change business? Like, did it make business better? And I said, you know, it really didn't change business because we were busy before that. Right. And you can only I mean, Brad, you know, you can you can only do so many covers or the wheels come off you know, the restaurant, right? So we were already sort of doing that. So it didn't really change revenue, but it changed the makeup of who was in the dining room. Because before that, we were, I don't know, Michelle, what are you, like 80%, 85% of our guests were white. I would count the amount of black people that came in and ate. I'd be like, oh, we got six in the diner bar and we got four <laughs> on table 34. And that <laughs> was a new record. <laughs> Um, but after chef's table, um, it changed the makeup of the dining room and you started to see that the black community was coming out to be in this space that Mishama was running and to see her in action and to be proud of her and almost to touch her, like physically touch her, you know, 
in this building that no black people would have been allowed to walk through the front door of, you know, the entire time it operated. And so that changed sort of our guest makeup significantly in terms of attracting the team, you know, and it being, you know, mixed. Like we get reviews sometimes, you know, like there's, you know, Mm -hmm. there are no white there are no black people, you know, you, you only see them in the kitchen or I, I was, you know, microaggressions or, you know, the assumption that if, well, just a sensitivity to the fact that, and Mishama literally had to explain this to me once. She's like, Jono, if black people walk into the gray and don't see other black people, they're not going to feel as comfortable. Like just the way you, if you walked into a place and you were the only white guy, would you feel as comfortable as if other people who looked like you? And that honestly had never occurred to me before she said that. And right before the pandemic, we had like the most balanced team we ever yeah, had. We like it was like, yeah. you know, I think our server staff was majority black and everybody was personable and they were on it and they were great and boom the pandemic hits and we literally were back to square one from a representation in the in the front of the house and i don't know you know i'm responding a little bit to what mishama said a little a few minutes ago where she said i don't know what we're doing that makes black people not want to work here or something along those lines i just you know We're downtown, you know, it's like we're not, you know, we're in a we're sort of in a white enclave, you know, and I I don't know the reasons why it's been such a struggle, but it's always at the forefront of our mind. And we're always trying to keep the scales balanced Um, and representative is a better word than balanced. But, you know, it's not a lot of times it's not in our control. Like, I want to just throw one more thing out there. Like, you know, we work with different programs around town to try and, you know, make it an inclusive work environment. It's just, it's not easy. Well, I, you know, there, there are more dynamics that affect um, this conversation and the realities that we're talking about than unfortunately we're going to have time to get into today. But yeah. I do want to bring up the point that the mere existence of you both in business together and, and chef with you having an, an increasing voice on a national stage, more black food writers, finally, you know, some more attention, more media attention on the black food experience and contribution in this country, I think is going to make younger folks more inclined, less intimidated, possibly to get into our business. I mean, you know, when you start to talk about different neighborhoods, there's the wealth gap that we all know about. That's too big a conversation to have. But I think that the way that you both influence the trend changing, I think is going to be significant. Um, and I, and I also want to, you know, say thank you because Michelle, you said something funny. You said you're a little black power and you said you didn't want to, you didn't say that in the book. You said it a, a couple of times and you didn't mean to intimidate your, your business partner. But what you meant by that was that you were going to look out for black folks and, and create opportunities where you could. I'm no household name. I know folks are knocking on your doors. Uh, these days because of this phenomenal book and your great success. Yet you both agreed to do my podcast. And I look at that as being as kind of walking the walk and doing what you said that you were going to do. Jeff. My God, can we just talk all day? (laughs) (laughs) Michelle and I are just happy that anybody wants to talk to us, Brad. Don't take, 
Don't take too big a kudos for it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we just hang out oh. for the rest of the day. No, it's, 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 imp- this is important. You know, it's really important. And it's like, you know, going back to staffing, one of the things that Jono said to me very early on, he was like, how, like, how hard is it to get people? We couldn't give, you know, we were just struggling to get anyone in the door, especially in the kitchen. And so, you know, he just thought people were going to line up and want to work there. And I was like, well, no one knows who I am. You know, no one knows that, you know, no one knows who I am. No one knows what I'm cooking. And why no should one they cares? Leave? No one cared at that point. Yeah, right? no one cared. So why should they leave their job that's going to let them smoke, take cigarette breaks and talk on their cell phones while they're working and come here to a place that isn't going to let them do that. And we lost a lot of people, especially in the back of the house in the beginning for that, because they it was it wasn't the laxed environment that they were used to. And, you know, I started to get this reputation around town that there was no talking in the kitchen. Right? <laughs> like You can't talk in the kitchen. And so I think, you know, as we continue this journey and we reach, we continue to reach out and, and, and work with the community of Savannah, we'll start to, you know, reap the benefits. And we've have some longstanding people that have come in as dishwashers and, you know, now they're prep cooks and they're interested in, in front of house and they're interested in service and, and, and just, all the things that we're working towards, which is, which is all you can ask really. Yeah. Well, I, I encourage you, please just keep making your voice heard. So we're, we're, we're winding down here towards the end. John, I wanted to go to um, page 157 in the book and you mentioned having had it with New York City. Uh, you come from uh, uh, Staten Island where there's tons of firemen, uh, police officers, I believe some folks in your family were in service that way. Following 9-11, obviously New York took a big hit. Um, you had an unraveling business partnership after you know having been successful at several things, but you just reached a point where you really felt like you were ready for a change. And you said that, and I'm going to quote you here. He said, I had begun to take that next step in listening to the voice that centered me. I was back to my childhood in a way with food being the thing that gave me peace, comfort and completeness. That's kind of beautiful, man. What? Tell me about that. I, I second the vote of just wanting to do that. I literally looked at my clock on my computer to see how much time we had left because I hope we had more. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. I mean that sincerely. Like Thank you. Your, 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 the whole conversation, it's not even your questions. This has just been great. Yeah, I mean... I, I didn't like I never knew that I could make a living doing what I loved, you know, and, you know, as a kid, I loved basketball. I was really sure I couldn't make a living doing that. Um, that's why your earlier comment was so hilarious to me. But what I had what I hadn't realized, but I over my career while I was, on, you know, I was on the road a lot and I lived in a couple of other cities besides New York. But I've always been in big cities that were all about food. And what I hadn't realized until I really considered the gray is that I had developed an amateur's expertise 
in food and wine, you know, because I ate a lot of it and I, I just ate in restaurants every night and I grew really passionate, um, around wine after living in, in Paris in my, in my twenties. And it started to occur to me because it started to occur to me that I could make a living or at least try to make a living doing it. And I, I, when I was telling my wife that, um, what I called 109 MLK at the time, which was the ad, which is the address for the, Hey, a restaurant. She's like, you know, she, she asked me if I was fucking crazy, but which I clearly was, but she, um, she was like, what do you know about running a restaurant? And I felt inside of me that I knew enough about food and wine. And I thought about my childhood. I thought about the fact that that was the only thing that ever mattered you know, to my grandparents and to my father and to me and my siblings in a way that connected us all. And it really just felt at that point, and because I was very emotional and I was like really reflective and again, seeking sort of a way to renew myself, I just, you know, got very emotional emotionally connected to the idea of doing this, making making a restaurant that was around food and wine and community. Well, props to Carol, your wife. Yeah. And uh, man, I'm, I'm so glad you and Mashama found each other. Um, chef, so this is the proverbial last call. I want to toss the last one to you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly wishing for our industry to make a full recovery as soon as possible. I'm hoping for full ticket lines and hopefully not very many lagging tickets along the way. Um, but we all want to see restaurants come back. We've missed them. We, I, I hope it's that, that old thing that's saying, you know, how can we miss you if you don't go away? Well, <laughs> restaurants went away for a minute and I think folks are, are ready for them to come back. But as I mentioned before, you know, you, you, your, your platform is growing. The stage is getting bigger. Your megaphone is going to get louder. You and John, Jono together are just like super dynamic. I love the book. If I haven't mentioned that 10 times already, here's number 11. I love the book, the black, white and the gray. So I wanted to ask you, you know, with all the existential threats that we face, the a new administration is not going to change that. Uh, um, a vaccine's not going to change that. Cocktail might help, might turn a, a square into a circle. But we have some some serious challenges in front of us and all as well as the ones that we've talked about. One of the people that I know you admire that I also admire, Nina Simone, has a song, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. And she says, she asks the question, baby, do you understand me now? What do you want folks to understand about Chef Mishama Bailey? Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, where is he going with this? <laughs> Just glad he asked you that question. Yeah, seriously. Um, I want people to understand that I am, you know, I'm about my family and I'm about my community and I'm about, you know, all of us raising up together. You know, I've never, I've never been, you know, I can be a mean person, but I'm not a vindictive person. And so I'm not about holding people back. I'm about bringing people along. And I'm hoping that, you know, from my actions that people see that and they understand that that is always going to be where I'm coming from, the, the place that I'm coming from. 
That's sort yeah. of like the, the first thing that came to my head. So that's a bit. I'm gonna start that works. That works for me. <laughs> um, I want to just please impress upon anyone who hears this podcast. If you're in Savannah, if you're in Austin in the near future, please check out the gray and the gray market. These two operators are really something special. And Jono, Chef Mishama, I just am so grateful that you agreed to join me here today. I, I wish we could talk all day. I promise I am coming to see you whether you want me to or not, but I'm going to be in those restaurants. But oh, yeah. I just wanted to say thank you so much for today. This was great. Thank really, you. Truly. Yeah, this great. was awesome. Really was. Thank you, Brad. You almost made me cry. Yeah, several <laughs> times. I'm still a little emotional. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Everybody, I have Ambassador Shabazz and How We Move. Ambassador, what's happening? That interview with Bashama Bailey and John Marsano was absolutely amazing. It's exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you. It's something special, huh? Yeah, it was just what I needed on the long list of things that are going on in the world and how people are navigating through things. And, you know, as I was talking to you the other day, I just said, ah, I've had a thick week. You know, it was like loaded with plenty and it was all mine, you know, uh, all essential, mainly great but a labyrinth, you know, and so listening to them, you get to see that not all things land perfectly, but if you have great partnership, insight and passion, desire, you can get to the other side. You know, what is that purpose? You kind of have a vision and um, they're so honest that they can get through that gray and the gray is often something I um, reference to other people as well. This gifts are in the gray. You know, the easy part is the black and the white or the ends. That, that real jewel is somewhere in the middle. And if you dare to have the strength to venture, to explore there, you're, um, you're, you're bound to come out with something very, you know, very unique. And, you know, and amidst all the things I was going through in this past, you know, week, um, I was searching for that cool down, you know, after you have like a tough aerobic session or a Taibo session, <laughs> you're like looking at the clock and looking at the, you know, you're hoping it's about to come and it's said, all right, now everybody and exhale. So that's, that's where I was this week. And well, let's, um, let's, it, let's, you know, we, we get real here. Now you had, you know, you're, in my opinion, you always have it balanced somehow. You manage yeah. with, with many things that come at you, but you had some challenges last week and yeah. we spoke uh, a couple of days ago and I, and I just reminded you to breathe, yeah. take a moment, take a breath, take a, and think, and speaking with Jono, you know, his breath was taking that drive into the South with his wife when he needed a change. But in your case, you're in Louisville. You took a deep breath. You needed an embrace this weekend. You needed to, you know, have that, have that feeling that you, that connected you to something that made you feel a little bit of what you were looking for. So, so what did you do? Tell us, tell us. Well, you know, it's, it's for, I'm fortunate in that. And thank you for that because you're one of those persons with whom I can be that open or share some of those things. But, you know, fortunately, I am surrounded by opportunities when I pause that reveal the good stuff, right? And we actually all do, right? You know, when you sit, the, the answers come. If you ask them out loud, there's a bulletin that comes to you. It's only when you second guess it that you throw it off, right? 
you know, you get that bulletin that comes to you. And, you know, um, Ossie Davis used to say, uh, get down it and from around it, <laughs> you know, so for all of us in the house, it's like, oh, Uncle Ossie, you know, you wanted some, you know, uh, sympathy, you get down mm-hmm. it and from around it. My mother would always say, find the good and praise it, you know, and, you know, when I heard that you were out there, you know, jet skiing, you know, I just forecasted myself as if I was out there on that water, um, lit a candle on this side. It was scented, thought about all the good things that do exist and balanced it, you know. You went to get something to eat, though. That's what I'm about to tell you now. Yeah, tell me about that. That followed a series of meetings. And this is the thing that's interesting when you talk about the gray. Amidst that list of Zoom calls and presentations and lectures and things pounding, uh, looking for 100 percent, um, were these two sisters at the first half hour was about the business that we were united to talk about. They're brilliant. They're magnificent. But then the truth came and they talked about what it was to be women in business, what it was to be Latina, they're Puerto Rican and Cuban, and, you know, to be executives and taken seriously. And then all of a sudden, we moved into the value of culture, preservation, fortification. And lo and behold, after talking about being Caribbean, food, music, preservation, as I had mentioned, we made a date. And within two days, we were at the restaurant of one of them. Uh, her brother has a Cuban restaurant called La Bodeguita. De Mima. Mima means mommy, like Madea mm-hmm. in the South. La Bodeguita de Mima. And there's a this famous... In this is in Louisville, Kentucky. Actually, mm-hmm. eight walking blocks from me. So if I were in New York, it'd be an easy walk, but, you know, not in 20 degrees. Mm-hmm. So, but I do know it's there. And I've driven past it, and it's a bright yellow and aqua building very Caribbean, you know, looks like sun and sea. And, but I never knew what it was. It's not near a light. So I've always driven past it. And I have to tell you, when I stepped in there, it was like the tapestry of all things needed. You know, Mm -hmm. it was like a gallery of Cuba. And that included the aroma, the colors, the, the joy, the music, the pictures on the walls uh, that included people like Celia Cruz. It took me back to New York because, you know, in New York, you can make a left or right turn and it's any culture all the time. You don't have to like drive miles or move miles. And it took me back to an era because I grew up with the, that melange of, uh, like Johnny Pacheco, who passed away just a week ago, as we discussed yesterday, or Chick Corea not too long ago, Celia Cruz. And being there with these two women, it was as if we stepped out of the, uh, the, the world of real life and into this oasis as if we were in Cuba together. Mm. And it What'd was, you, eat? We, you know what? I'm one of those persons that when I go to a new restaurant, especially I'm a sides person because I need to sample. I need a sample plate. So the, the, in Spanish, that's called acompañantes, like side plates, accompaniment. And so we had, uh, we started with something called Cuba nacho. Now, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you get nachos. Mm-hmm. This is Cuba nacho. This is very different. This is not like your regular, you know, nachos with the melted cheese. They make the nacho out of thinly sliced plantain chips. That's just, you know, crisp, made crispy by the, uh, by the olive oil. And then on top of it, it has all that good stuff. And, you know, you start on the side because everybody's being germ conscious, but after a while you start diving in the middle. <laughs> so that's what we started with. And then the drinks came. So I don't drink. I had mango juice that was fresh. You could tell the other sisters had mojitos. Much of it, though, was the atmosphere. You know, much of it was 
was sharing with people that I didn't know a week earlier and felt like I knew forever. And we we pledged so much after that. Well, that kind of is our theme really today that was not necessarily intentional, but we ended up there and, and the embrace that, you know, restaurants and, and places that have culture that we that we need and that we desire that we miss that that gets provided for us. So can you tell us the name of the of the place again? La Bol de Gita de Mima. B O D E G I T A de Mima. So it's the restaurant of Mima. And it's all of her foods. It actually feels like going to someone's mother's house. Oh, I love know. that. Well corner table Listeners, please, if you're in Louisville and there are a lot of reasons to go to that lovely yeah. city, please stop by and see those lovely ladies and, and have the meal that the ambassador just described. We want to thank you for joining us today. And we are embracing you virtually with lots of love and sending you good vibes and, and stay healthy and safe. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, coordinating producer Lauren Turner. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.